Revelation 2, verses 18 through to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But... To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned of what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For those of you who uh, maybe aren't familiar with, with what's, what's been happening here at Foundation Church over the last few weeks, um, you're, you're kind of coming in to midway through a series that we are doing as a church called Status Update. And that series is based on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation from which we've just read. That's the, the final book in the entire Bible. And these chapters deal with messages that Jesus the risen, resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus gives to seven real historic churches. He appears to the Apostle John in a, in a vision, this glorious, resurrected, resplendent Lord Jesus, as he presently is. And he tells John to, to watch and listen and record everything that he learns to be given to these seven churches. They are located in a, in a place called Asia Minor, which is roughly the same as modern-day Turkey, where a lot of people go on their holidays. In fact, they had an earthquake there recently. Uh, you may have heard on the news um, about that. But this message um, is then written down on this big scroll called the, 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 you know, the book, as we know it now, of Revelation, and it's given to these seven churches. And most likely it's passed around the seven. They probably copied it down for themselves and then passed it on to the next church. So they're all reading it. But within the first three chapters, there's a specific message for each church. And so we come to uh, one, two, three, four. The fourth me message out of seven to this one here, uh, this church in the city called Thyatira, which is in modern-day Turkey. 
You can't go there anymore. There's nothing much of it except for some archaeological sites. Um, but it's a real historic church nonetheless. Out of the seven churches and out of the seven cities that are represented in these chapters in the Bible, Thyatira, the one we're looking at today, is the smallest city. It is the least significant city out of all of them. So there's actually not a lot of historical information about it. What we do know is that it was quite an industrial city. Um, the, the first convert, we saw this a few weeks ago in Philippi, uh, was a woman called Lydia. and She came from this city. This, this woman, Lydia, uh, was a dealer in purple cloth, you know, expensive purple cloth. And so she came from this city here. The patron saint of the city of Thyatira was, was the, uh, likened to the, 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 the god Apollos, who was often depicted in, in pictures and, and, and sculptures on a horse with a double-edged axe in his hand. This is the patron god Apollos, who that city uh, respected and gave worship to. But although this is the smallest city in the smallest town, actually you'll notice it's the longest message out of all of them that Jesus gives to them. And for those of you who were here last week, you'll, you'll notice some similarities with this message compared to the one from the, the church before in a city called Pergamum. There are some similarities. Both churches seem to have compromised somewhat with the outside world, with sort of, you know, values of a non-Christian society. It seems to be bleeding into the church. And, and so last week and this week, there's a similarity there. Churches have compromised. Both of the churches last week and this week have been listening to false teaching, a, a, a false um, teaching within the Christian church that is deviating people away from Jesus. And in both churches, Jesus threatens action unless they take action themselves. If you don't wise up, Jesus says to the churches, then I'm going to come against you. I'm going to bring judgment and you'll know all about it then. But what we see that is a bit different from last week and this week is a, is a development. Um, last week we saw that the church, the whole church, had an option. They could turn things around. But this week we see there is a certain section of the church that are just too far gone. In fact, to use words from the Apostle John in one of his letters, he says they were, they were from us, but they were not really of us. These people in the church looked like Christians, they sounded like Christians, but yet ultimately they proved themselves not to be the real deal. And we'll, we'll see that a little later on. So we could say that between last week and this week, there's a development, there's a worsening of this problem, uh, which I will uh, hopefully help you to see over the next few minutes. So as we see with most of the churches, Jesus starts off by commending some of the good things that are happening. And we see that in verse uh, 19, you can, you can read along just so you know I'm not making this stuff up. Down in verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works, the stuff you're doing now, is, exceeds the stuff you used to do as a church at the beginning. So, so, so they start off well. There's good things happening in this church, this ancient church in Thyatira. Good but it's not long through the message before we get to the word but, 
which, as we've seen over the last few weeks, signifies that Jesus has identified something within the church that is not right. But, he says in verse 20, you, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. And if you're looking for a couple of words that sum up the entire problem within that church, we have it right there. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. We can understand everything that's gone wrong with this church from those five words. And it's important that we do a bit of background work on this name, on this woman, before we can really understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. Again, we saw this last week. There's an Old Testament uh, name, an Old Testament story that Jesus alludes to. And again, he does so in this phrase, that woman, Jezebel. Who is Jezebel? If you're familiar at all with the earlier, the more ancient parts of the Bible, uh, way back in the book of 1 Kings 16, which describes the kings of Israel, one after another after another, you'll realize that Jezebel is the pagan wife. She's a non-believing, non-Israelite wife of one of the kings of Israel, a guy by the name of Ahab. He himself was a total scoundrel. Uh, the Bible says he was worse than all the other kings before him, and there were some pretty rubbish kings before him as well. Ahab just takes the, the biscuit when it comes to being terrible. And this wife called Jezebel, who's the pagan uh, wife, the queen, if you like, uh, embarked on a project to systematically remove Israelite religion from Israel and replace it with her own brand of, of paganism. So, so she killed uh, the prophets of God. She led Israel into more and more sin with her husband. She went after Elijah, who was God, one of God's uh, chosen prophets. Made Israel a misery by bringing in her, her pagan ways, her pagan teachings into the people of Israel. It's actually a great story. If you want to read your kids a sort of really grisly tale um, before bed, it's an awesome story. 1 Kings 18 tells us that one day the prophet Elijah um, you know, has a showdown with the prophets of the pagan prophets and uh, all the stuff that happens there is a really cool story. But anyway, suffice to say this woman Jezebel, a uh, pagan woman trying to convert uh, Israel and, and the people of God to, to non-believing um, non religion, if you like. So that's her. And so that name that we're just reading here is significant. Um, it's probably not a random name. It's probably not her real name, the, the, the individual that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, it's not the kind of name that you would necessarily give to your children. Uh, it's like calling your child Judas or Satan. You wouldn't necessarily uh, give them that name, but the idea is that this name, uh, Jezebel, evokes a, a shudder down your spine when you hear about it. And so Jesus is saying to the church here in Thyatira, you have one like this Jezebel in your church. She's causing great trouble. It says in verse 20 here that she calls herself a prophetess, that she's teaching and seducing people away to immorality and to, to eating food, sacrificed to idols. That's what she's up to in the church. It's interesting, by the way, that she calls herself a prophetess. 
It's not that Jesus has given her that title or the church has given her that title. It is something that she has called herself. She's taken it upon herself, possibly to give herself an air of plausibility, of respectability within the church. She's trying to win people to her message. So she calls herself a prophetess or some such phrase. And it says that she's been teaching or or leading the people astray. She's been influencing them somehow, manipulating them in a Christian guise, using Christian Bible words. But she's been leading them away to sexual immorality and to food, uh, sacrifice to idols. And we saw last week that these aren't two random sins, but they are very much connected to the prevailing non-Christian religious practices in that city. But it's been bleeding into the Christian faith. And so we see in that respect, it is similar to last week. But the thing that is different here in Pergamum, in Thyatira, is that we have here this individual that Jesus calls Jezebel, who is an established Christian, let's say in inverted commas, teacher inside the church. In in Pergamum last week, we saw that compromise was from outside. But here we have someone who is a well-established person within the local church, leading people astray. And that's a problem, as we shall see. But as with every sin within the church, there's always the sin itself, and then there's ripples. It has effects on those around them. In fact, we could say there are are other effects that she's been having, and we see that as we go through the text You know, a little bit of yeast, as we saw last week, affects the whole loaf of bread. So we see Jezebel herself is a problem in the local church. In verse 23, we see the the next layer. We have these people who Jesus describes as children. Followers of Jezebel, devoted followers, uncompromising followers, disciples of Jezebel. You know, the deep things of Satan, as he says. These are, these are people who have listened to her message, who have engaged 100% behind her. And as we'll see, they are beyond help. So we have Jezebel, we have the children, you know, the so-called children, the followers. And then the third layer, the third sin, the third problem that then ripples out from this in verse 22 is those who commit adultery with her. These aren't the children, so to speak, the devoted followers, but we have here another group of people who just sort of dabble in what Jezebel's talking about. They sort of caught up in it. They've they've tasted, if you like, the delights that she has to offer. But they're not 100% sold in. There is an option for them, as we'll see in a few moments, for for them to turn around, to, to repent, come back to Jesus. They haven't gone too far. That's the third group. And then fourthly and finally, the outside ring. And if anything, the fourth ring, the fourth concentric circle around this huge problem that Jesus identifies is is the worst problem, in my view. It says in verse 20, Jesus, as we've been seeing over the last few weeks, isn't speaking to individuals. He's speaking to the church. And he says to the church, you tolerate that woman. So the fourth ripple, the fourth circle, biggest problem is that the church has tolerated this stuff. 
It is okay with this happening inside its four walls. It has it is somehow grown used to it. It's kind of settled with this. This is normal for us, they would say. What's worse? The fact that someone would be a Jezebel or the fact that it gets accepted and permitted in the church. And we've got to remind ourselves, just in case we just come, come at this and think, oh, this is just terrible. How could those idiots in the old days let this happen? We have to remind ourselves, as we saw last week again, sorry I keep referring back to last week, we have to remind ourselves that this hasn't just happened overnight. They didn't just wake up one day as a church and thought, you know what, let's start tolerating some gross sexual immorality. Let's start compromising. No, 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 that's not how it happens. It happens bit by bit. It starts off subtly. She calls herself a prophet. She has a listening. People accept her message. It sounds Christian. It's got Christian words. She's a prophet after all. You know, church leaders might, might disagree with what she's saying on this point here or that point there. They might dislike what she's doing. But maybe they're sidetracked off to other things the church is doing. Maybe they think, oh, it'll go away. It's okay. But bit by bit, day by day, week by week, this, this problem grows. It's like a, like a mushroom. The cracks, to use a different metaphor, widen. The church clearly has failed to address this in the early stages. They either have no framework to deal with it, or they have no backbone to use what they have to deal with it. So they say nothing. They give it a pass. They just turn a blind eye. And all of a sudden if you like. They've grown familiar. They have accepted that this just happens in their church. And they just hope to goodness that Jesus doesn't see. I, I was uh, born in a county in the south of England called Dorset, way down on the south coast. Um, and there's a very famous uh, rock formation. It's called Durdle Door. I don't know if you've ever been to it. You've maybe seen it on a postcard or on a, on a TV show or something like that. It'd be, I guess, kind of similar to the Giant's Causeway in the sense that it's a famous rock formation. So it'd be the Giant's Causeway of Dorset. And the reason it's called Durdle Door is that it looks like, when you stood on the cliff looking down at it, it looks like a giant door that's been left open by some giant being. Um, if you can imagine standing on the cliff edge or not too far away from it, you're looking out of the sea, but you see the cliff sort of uh, curving round to your left and out stretching into the sea. And rather than just being a solid cliff, towards the end of it is this massive opening, huge, 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 it's 10 stories high, even more. It looks like a massive door that a giant would have walked through at some point. And the thing that's amazing about that is that Durdle Door hasn't always been there. You know, uh, I don't know how many hundreds or even thousands of years ago, but at one point it used to be one solid cliff, one solid mass of, of rock, thousands of tons, millions perhaps of tons of rock. So how did Durdle Door come about? Well, small cracks appeared in the rock. 
and, and, and the water of the English Channel storms bit by bit got into those cracks, widened those cracks, caused fracture of the cracks. They burst open. The cracks widened. More water got in over the years. More stones got in and just opened that up. And so week by week, year by year, it probably took hundreds of years, this crack widens and widens and widens until we have Durdle Door, this gaping door that a giant could pass through. And so we see the same thing going on in this church here. There has been, over the years, relentless pushing against the church from outside, from the prevailing culture, from inside, from this self-chosen prophet called Jezebel, helped on by the easy acceptance of many within the church and a blind eye from all the rest. And before you know it, this gaping massive hole in the center of the church, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, says Jesus. And here she is, continuing her evil ministry unopposed. And it's easy for us here today, several thousand years down the line, looking at Thyatira. And as we've been thinking a few moments ago, we think to ourselves that it could never happen to us in the 21st century. Surely we're more intelligent, we're more aware of these things happening. You know, these are ancient peoples, we're, we're, we're modern people. We don't, we don't allow that kind of thing. We certainly, in the church, we don't allow that thing to happen around here. But that would be to, well, I think it's incredibly arrogant to actually think that because the danger to us today as a church here at Foundation and, and many other local churches like us, that danger of this thing happening to us is no less real today in 2017 as it was back then in 70 AD or whenever it happened to be. We have an increasingly non-Christian culture and so it's only likely to become stronger that we will see these types of things within the church more and more as we go along. Just because we're modern people doesn't mean that we're in any way immune from the problem that we see here. There are plenty of modern-day Jezebels doing the rounds, plenty of self-proclaimed religious leaders who use religious-sounding words and, and give themselves titles, and they call it ministry, and it sounds Christian and wonderful, and we can trust it. There are plenty of these people on our TV screens, plenty of them doing the rounds on the circuits, using Bible words to describe something that's frankly foreign, alien to what God actually says. We can see their subtlety. We can see their smoothness. We can see that oftentimes they are manipulators and peddlers of the Word of God. Hunger for the usual stuff Everybody's out to get looking good, feeling good, and having the goods. And, and there are these self-proclaimed prophets who just use the name of Jesus and use Christian words to go out and get the power, get the influence. We probably have one such individual visiting Belfast later this year, in case you are wondering. The infamous faith healer, 
by the name of Benny Hinn is coming to Belfast later this year. He is someone, if you don't know the word, the name, uh, he's a very famous individual actually on, on Christian TV networks. Uh, he has exercised a dubious healing ministry, influencing millions of people on TV and in person. Himself accruing millions of dollars of wealth and, and material possessions. But let's not single him out. There are many on TV channels, many celebrity Christians, in inverted commas, who fit the bill just as much as Hin does. And like we see in this text, these self-chosen so-called Christian leaders have many devoted followers, many children, to use the language that Jesus uses, who won't hear anything against them. You can't reason with these individuals. They have made their minds up. They have given themselves 100% to following these leaders and faith healers and such like. We also see in our modern day plenty of those in the third category who are caught up in the hubris, influenced and impacted by these TV evangelists and TV preachers and all that kind of stuff. But as we see in the church at Thyatira, perhaps the most devastating level the, the most worrying concentric circle, if you like, is the fourth circle. See, the success of Benny Hinn and many others like him is an indictment on the church. You have tolerated people like this, says Jesus. If the multitudes in our churches are aware of the dangers if they're on guard, if they are well taught in the truth of God's word, then Benny Hinn's influence and those of many like him would disappear overnight. And as we've already been thinking, who is most to be pitied? Is it the peddlers of the gospel who just simply see a gap in the market? Or is it the toothless church that seems to do nothing to prevent it? These are, these are uh, general things, but let's, let's just start thinking now a little bit um, about how this affects us as a, as a church, as a foundation church. Let's get back to, to God's word and, 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 and see what Jesus says about this woman and, and, and her teaching and the problems within the church. Verse 23, Jesus will come and he says, all the churches, us included, foundation church included, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. So there's a warning to us today at Foundation Church from this specific text about this problem. And I have uh, personally seen this kind of thing at work in the local church context. I've seen uh, false teachers and, and have, have uh, seen the influence that they can have and for, for, for a new church like us, we've only been going almost six months, uh, we are easy targets for the enemy. We are easy targets. New churches, young churches are often caught on the back foot. They often have no framework in place to help prevent this kind of thing. They have no awareness of the opposition that shall come up. But when we carefully read the Bible, when we understand God's word and the help that's available in it and the warning that it has, then we are equipped 
at Foundation Church to be aware and to prevent this from happening. So what can we do? What can we do as a church? How can we prepare ourselves? How can we prevent this error from from happening to us? Um, I've shared this with a few of you over the last few weeks, but um, I've I've been spending quite a lot of time uh, working through the documents required uh, for our church as we walk into church membership uh, later on in the summer. Uh, Documents such as the statement of faith, what we believe. Documents such as the constitution, which is how we're organized. But the third document is the one uh, that's perhaps less known by Christians in general. And it's called the membership covenant. And it's this document that actually shows how we live. It gives a picture of what it looks like to be a Christian in community with one another. It's a a summary of the biblical teaching of of what gospel Christian community looks like, community that's centered and based around the good news of Jesus Christ, what it's like to to live together as a community. And it's a a beautiful uh, couple of lines in it. I just want to read to you now. I know um, most of you haven't actually had receipt of the church covenant yet, but you'll be getting it in a few weeks' time to to have a look at. But I just want to share some of the things about what what it says in it and and reflecting the beauty of the Bible's vision for Christian community. One of the sort of phrases it says is this, as a church, as church members, we will participate in each other's joy and strive with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. That's, That's one of the facets, that's what it's like to be in a gospel community. We are with each other through the thick and the thin, the good times and the bad, in the joys and in each other's burdens. We're here for each other. But a second thing that then forms part of this church covenants is that we will walk together in Christ-like love, listen, exercising Christian care and watchfulness over each other faithfully encouraging, rebuking, and exhorting each other as the situation demands. More of that in a few weeks' time. But it gives you a rough idea of the Bible's vision for Christian community, what it's like to be a member of a Christian community. And so we want to heed the warning, we want to listen to what Jesus is saying. One of the best ways that we can prevent this danger from happening is with the gift in the context of church membership, covenant gospel community. Don't forget, this is all based on a deeper understanding that we don't create some sort of police state that we're all going around looking at sins in each other's lives. Jesus clearly says, before you go and help your brother or sister in their sin, pointing a speck out in their eye, he says, you examine yourself and you make sure that you remove the plank in your own eye first before you help your friend, your your fellow covenant church member. But this, folks, is the gift of church membership. And this is why we, we are doing this together as a church. And for one of these reasons is that we get to minimize and prevent the risk that we see here in this church in Thyatira. 
But as wonderful as our documents are, as good as it is to be clear in our theology and have everything written down in black and white, these documents will mean nothing unless Jesus Christ is present with his church, with his people. Ultimately, our hope, our strength, our protection is not in a bunch of documents, but in Jesus, who is the King, and he is the Lord of his church. That is where our hope is. And we see that here in this text. And we've noted as we've gone through the series that each message to each individual church highlights a specific facet of Jesus in the great vision that he gave to John in, in the first chapter of Revelation. Highlights a different facet. And here we see Jesus is the warrior king. Look down at verse 18. These are, from, these are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Son of God means many things in the New Testament, but here it refers to God's term for a chosen king of Israel. The kings of Israel were all known as, in some way or other, the Son of God. They would rule on behalf of God. They would demonstrate God's kingly rule to the world. These are the words of the Son of God, whose feet are like burnished bronze, whose, whose, whose character, that is, is strong, who is splendid. And it says down here in verse uh, 27, Jesus has the king the strong king has the authority over the nations. We saw it in, in, in chapter 1. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here we have a conquering king ruling at, with a rod, smashing as if smashing pots, exercising power and authority over the nations. He is a warrior and he is victorious in battle. And in verse 18 we read, he has eyes that are flaming fire. Verse 23, it says, I am he, this is Jesus, who searches mind and hearts. He sees right through the mess and the confusion and the distraction in the church. He, he's not fobbed off or easily uh, won off by good works or whatever else is, is, is going on. Jesus is the warrior king who can see everything. Let me read to you a few verses from later on in, in Revelation 19. Another description of Jesus as the warrior king. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. That is Jesus. In righteousness he judges and makes war. Listen, his eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Later on it goes on to say, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. Listen, and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We see in our passage today, in that one we've just read from, the image of Jesus Christ that the church needed to hear. The image that we often forget when we think of Jesus. That he is a king. He is the conquering king. 
And this is a fearsome image, make no mistake. This is not of itself a very comforting thing. His eyes are flaming like fire. You see, it depends what side of this fearsome warrior king, this roaring lion, it depends what side of him you stand. That makes all the difference. See, if you are behind this king, if you're on his team, if you are a member of his faithful people, then you have a warrior king who is fighting for you. Or maybe more accurately, you're following him and he's doing the fighting. But either way, he is a source of strength, this fearsome king. He is a source of comfort and hope. You are on the winning team. But as this text makes clear, if you are on the other side of him, if you turn and face him not as a friend but as an enemy, if you face him in battle, then he to you is a terror. He to you is a threat. He is the all-conquering, roaring enemy and he will dash you into pieces like an earthen pot if you stand on that side of him. And we see Christ coming with fury to some within the church in Thyatira. Look at verse 22. Behold, he says, I will throw her, that is Jezebel, into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. I will strike her children dead. This fearsome king. And these were people in the church. Don't forget that. It begs the question, is anyone safe? Does church attendance put you on the right side of this warrior, this fearsome warrior king, Jesus? See, it's not ultimately our church documents, our church organisation, our membership process, the most important situation that you and I and everyone else who ever comes to foundation will ever face. It's how do you relate to that king? Are you with him? Or are you against him? His eyes see everything. Let's not forget everything we think, everything we do, everything we don't do we should have done, everything we believe, he sees it all. What will he find? See, this is a problem for all of us sat here, not just those in the church in Thyatira. There are no exceptions to this, unfortunately. He is the all-seeing, all-conquering king. And before him, our hearts are just laid bare. He demands perfection. He demands from us absolute holiness. He demands, as our king, total devotion and allegiance. And yet none of us sat here, none of us, in the, no person in the world, can ever provide the kind of allegiance that Christ is due. We might, we might say to ourselves, well, you know what? That allegiance you're talking of, that holiness you're talking of, that's just for religious people. That's just for the people of the book. People who read the Bible or other religious documents. But not me. You might think to yourself, I, I, I choose my own way to live. 
I don't live by the Bible. Maybe that king will be angry with those who don't believe the Bible, don't follow it, but I choose to live my life by my own standards. I define for myself what's right and what's wrong. Not some religious text or some religious tradition. Fine. If you think that. But let me ask you this before you think that you found a way out. Do you even live up to your own standards? One famous illustration sometimes helps to understand this. Imagine if every human being, when they're born as a, a baby, as soon as they're born, they have placed over their necks a voice recorder. And this voice recorder is not on all the time, but it only comes on when that person makes a value judgment. It only clicks on when you say, somebody should be doing this. Somebody should be doing that. If you have expectations of other people, then the recorder clicks on. Otherwise, it's silent. And imagine when those individual, when that individual, when you die and you go and stand in front of God and you say, look, you can't judge me by your standards because I never read the Bible. I don't, I'm not a religious person. So I get out of jail free. And God will say to you, okay, very well. And he'll take the recorder from around your neck and he'll just turn it around and press play. Did you live up, maybe not to my standards, did you live up to your own standards? What you expect from other people? Can you even live up to them? Can you live up to them perfectly? I put it to you that in our honest moments, there is not one person in this room who can even live up perfectly to their own standards, let alone to the standards that God requires. So we can see it's not a question of religious or non-religious, Bible or no Bible. Every one of us is in trouble. No one lives up to the standards of life. But we have seen week after week in this series that grace is available for people like us. Forgiveness is given to people like us. You see, according to the good news of the Christian faith, according to the gospel, it is possible to know Christ as your king rather than as a fearful enemy. How is it possible? We see here Jesus as a roaring lion. But first, we must see him as a lamb, as an innocent sacrificial lamb. You see, the Bible teaches that before Jesus came and will come as a lion, he came as a lamb. The Bible calls him the suffering servant. He came as a substitute because that's what lambs did in the old days. 
Instead of the sins of the people being brought before God, a lamb was brought before him in their place and it was killed, it was slain in his presence. The idea being that the lamb was slain, was killed, rather than the people for their sins. The lamb was slain for their sins. And this is exactly what happened when Jesus came as the lamb. Jesus was slain. He went to the cross and he took the wrath of God as a substitute in the place of his people, dying for his people. If you know Christ as the lamb, if you trust that what he did applied to you, that it covers you, that it defines you, that his death on the cross was for you to forgive you of your sin, if you believe this, if you trust this, then you do not need to fear Christ as the lion. Instead to you he will become the source of your comfort. He will become to you your strength. He will become to you the power. This is the gospel. If you know Jesus as the lamb and then the lion. Just in closing, not only are we to know Christ as the lamb and the lion, to be defined by his work on the cross, but as we have also seen every week, there is a promise attached to those who would listen to God's word through the scriptures. That promise was originally uttered to the church at Thyatira, to those who would hear the warning of Jesus and the offer of grace. And he says to them, in verse, what, where are we? 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This promise is almost too big for us to truly grasp. What Jesus is saying here is that if you trust me with your life, if you receive me as a lion and as a lamb, if I am your king, if I am in authority over you, then I am prepared to share with you my authority over the nations. That will be yours too. And you will rule with me. That's what he, I'm not making this up. That's what he's saying. And imagine what that would have sounded like to the little church in the smallest city in Asia Minor who are being battered again like the waters of the English Channel opening up Dirtle Door, opening up great holes within the church, battered and compromised. And to them, Jesus says, one day you will stand above nations and judge them. I will give you my authority. We will do this together. And that same promise stands for those of us today who hear his voice. He also promises the morning star. It doesn't explain in the text exactly what that means, but later on, at the end of this book, Jesus refers to himself as the morning star. Not only will the faithful, the ones who hear and listen and give themselves to Christ, not only will they receive his authority to stand in judgment over the nations one day, but even 
better than that. Those who are faithful will receive Christ himself when he comes at his second coming. They will not only rule with him, but they will have him, they will possess him, he will be theirs and they will be his. There is no greater treasure than having the morning star. To the one who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray.